Hey everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of Mike Adelic. I am your host, Mike Brancatelli. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being here. If you're new to the show, thanks for checking us out. Today is a uh, is a good one. We got Gordon White of Rune Soup, myself, and Ed Liu of Psychedelic Milk. This is uh, one of the bonus um, TriCast uh, things that me and Ed are doing. Each month, we're going to release uh, an episode with me, Ed Liu of Psychedelic Milk, and then another guest and try and have like a kind of a roundtable sort of discussion um, or free form discussion, something like that. Um, so yeah, this is a, this is a good one. And um, I'm, I'm so excited that I get to find out about these new and interesting people that are, you know, kind of like in the same realm uh, that I'm in. And, but in a different, in a, in a different realm that I, don't know much about, um, you know, magic, the occult, paranormal. It's not really my forte. I don't really have a ton of experience with that kind of stuff, but there's a lot of parallels between that and, and the stuff that I talk about on this show with the psychedelics and spirituality and um, libertarianism and anarchy and voluntarism and those sorts of things. Um, there's a lot of um, areas to, to mesh and to, to flow together. So it's it's really cool. You know, the more and more I go down, you know, the rabbit hole of of learning and finding guests and reading and doing stuff, it's like there's always another door that's opened. You know, there's always more layers to the onion to be peeled and it's uh it's 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 so cool. So um so this was like kind of not necessarily like an an even playing field really i mean it was more like i feel like me and ed were really learning a lot from gordon because you know he's uh he's an expert in in these topics he runs a blog called rune soup and he and he has a podcast called rune soup and you know they really you know get into it with a lot of things that uh like i said are kind of out of my out of my area of expertise but but uh similar and and fun to to learn from and to bounce back and forth with and, and to, talk, to talk with him about. And I want to have more guests on the show that are involved in, in this uh, sort of area of the occult and the paranormal and, and, um, and magic, you know, and, you know, who, who's not fascinated about this stuff? I mean, it's so, it's so fascinating. You know, oftentimes we see things going on in the world and there's, you know, all these, this surface level of what we see. And then there's so much that's like deeper beyond what we see. And there's so many points of entry. So, you know, this is another point of entry and it's, uh, it's really, really awesome. So I had a, I really enjoyed myself on this one. I was a little kind of out of my element because I, I was recording, uh, on the, uh, on the road. So I had, I was, I was mobile. So I kind of didn't have my, my setup and I just didn't really, but anyway, whatever. Yeah, it was a good one. Um, I hope to have Gordon back on the show. I would love to, uh, to, pick his brain more and to get into to more conversations with him about uh, some of the things that, you know, expand on some of the things that we talked about in the show. Um, so yeah, just to give you a little taste, I mean, Gordon is, um, you know, involved in, in magic, economics, science and health, geopolitics, um, all kinds of, you know, like the occult, paranormal, as I said, all kinds of things that all kind of, that all mesh into each other to make a really fascinating, uh, fascinating individual Gordon White is. So um, <clears throat> if you guys are uh, enjoying this show, 
help me out. Help uh, help support this podcast. You know, there's uh, there's a couple ways you can do it. You know, one is you could just leave me a nice five star rating and review on iTunes. That really helps the show grow. It helps spread this message and expose it to more people. And you know, get little podcasts like me out to a, a bigger audience and expose me and Gordon and Ed to to wider audience and get the ideas that we're talking about that we find so fascinating and so important to uh, a wider group. You know, I know that this isn't probably something that has, you know, wide mass appeal. You know, wide mass appeal is like, I don't know, uh, Migos and Drake and Nicki Minaj or whatever. But, you know, I, I um, you know, reality housewives and this thing and that thing, whatever. I mean, I think that's kind of where our culture's at for the mass mainstream. But hopefully, you know, plugging along with the kind of ideas and things that we're talking about in, in my sort of pseudo intellectual way, <laughs> uh, that, um, that people will find them interesting and entertaining and want to, you know, learn more and, and, and and that sort of thing. So if you can leave a nice rating and review on iTunes, that helps the show out a lot. Right now we have 65 star ratings and reviews on iTunes. It's amazing. And uh, you don't even have to write anything. If you just take out your phone and you search for Mikeadelic, um, M-I-K-E-A-D-E-L-I-C, Mikeadelic, um, search for that and then just uh, click five stars, like leave a review and just click five stars. Uh, if you think that we deserve five stars so far, 60 people have thought that. So, uh, it's pretty good. I'd love, I'd love to get to a hundred, um, by the end of the year, that'd be really cool. And, um, yeah, maybe I'll do some kind of like giveaway or something for like the hundredth review or something like that. I don't know. But, uh, I like to read the reviews on air. I got a couple of reviews recently. Um, not not too detailed, just more things like, or not too detailed, just things like killer podcast, way to go, keep it up, great work, awesome show. So, you know, just a couple words like that is is fine or just no words at all, just clicking five stars and, and leaving that. So it helps the podcast grow. It helps us get pushed up into the category that we're in and it helps people who are searching for psychedelics and liberty and magic and spirituality and those sorts of things, uh, find us. And then when they find us, they'll, you know, click on and, and decide to, to give it a listen, hopefully enjoy it. And, you know, so, um, you know, please subscribe and share with your friends if you, uh, if you can, uh, whatever episodes you feel are most interesting and let me know too, you know, give me feedback. Uh, you know, a lot of this show is guided by what you guys say to me. You know, if I, I kind of do what I do because, you guys keep telling me that like, this is good or this isn't good or do this or do that. And, you know, I listen to you. So, you know, I just try and I keep trying to make the shows that you enjoy. Um, so thank you very much. And, uh, uh, another way you can support the show is if you go to patreon.com, that's uh patreon.com slash Mike Brank, B-R-A-N-C. And just, um, you know, donate to the show, help support the show a dollar a month, $2 a month, $5 a month, whatever you could afford. You know, if you have some extra scratch laying around and you just want to throw it my way, that's cool. You know, you got an extra couple of Federal Reserve notes burning a hole in your pocket. You just got to get them out of there. Throw them on Patreon. Give them the Mike Brank. And um, I'll put good use to them. All the money that I'll receive from this podcast, I try and put into the show, into buying better equipment and, buy, you know, getting better uh, sound quality, better production value. It's just me doing this. It's just all me. So I reach out to the guests, I book the guests, I set up the interviews, I record the show, and I edit the show, I put the music in, and I, I, I built my website myself, and I put it on the website, and 
I do everything. So um, it'd be nice to kind of grow the show and expand it. And, you know, I'd love to get to like 10,000 listeners by by January or something like that, by next year, by, ha- you know, having 10,000 listeners would be amazing. And, you know, from, from, from then, then I would, I would love to do some marketing for the show, put some money into it, design some really cool, like little video clips or, or art with like some quotes or something and, and get them out there, target some, you know, people on Facebook who are interested in, in the things that we talk about and hopefully put this in front of them and see if it's something that they enjoy and, and they like, and hopefully we can grow the show and, and, and spread it, but I need your help. So if you can just leave me a nice rating and review on iTunes or donate on Patreon and we'll uh, spend that money in the right way to, to grow this show. And any ideas that you guys have, any feedback, if anybody wants to collaborate on anything, I'm all ears. You can always message me anytime, Facebook, Twitter, go on my website and contact me um, any way that you want. You know, I, I really want this to be kind of a collaborative mission with you guys who, who care about what I'm doing here and care about what I'm saying. To uh, let me know, you know, let me know when I'm doing good. Let me know when I'm fucking up. Let me know when, you know, let me know if you have any ideas on how to make the show better, grow the show, or things to do, things like that. And uh, yeah, that would be great. That would be really cool. Um, so that's it, really. Um, this is an awesome conversation with uh, a fascinating individual, Gordon White of Rune Soup. Uh, myself and Ed, Mil- Ed, I almost said Ed Milk, Ed Lou of Psychedelic Milk. Um, so that's it. That's for the intro and try and keep these intros under 10 minutes. Sometimes they go to like 16 minutes. I apologize for that, you know, but, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a guy that can do a solo show for two and a half hours. So, you know, put a microphone in front of me and I, and I just can't stop talking. I mean, I, I do love the sound of my own voice. Isn't it nice and soothing? I've been, I've been trying to, I've been thinking about maybe doing some, uh, voiceover work. Let me know what you guys think about that. Like I could, I could, I could read books like on Audible, you know, I think that would be good. Chapter one, Lewis entered the bedroom, looked at Miranda. Miranda turned and said, my God, you don't have enough fiber today. You need a fiber. Well, (laughs) I just, okay. Riffing a little bit. Uh, but yeah, some people, it's made some people like, yeah, you have a really good voice for, for that. And like, I never really thought that I had a good voice for doing this, but, uh, yeah, I think it would be fun to do to do that. Uh, I also like to do impressions. So sometimes I throw out some videos on YouTube doing some Trump impressions, Alex Jones. I just did one making fun of that guy, Paul Joseph Watson, who I find to be a ridiculous human being. Uh, but yeah, anyway, we're having fun. We're having good times. Oh, man, I went over 10 minutes. All right, I got to shut up and let you guys enjoy this awesome show with Gordon White of Room Soup and Ed. Of psychedelics. psychedelics are illegal not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third story window psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing they open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong we don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Information is power, but we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. The interchanging mind control. 
favorite podcast of mine, of course, Psychedelic, talking about psychedelics, politics, libertarianism. And also, I just saw your video on your impersonation of Paul Joseph Watson, which is really <laughs> funny. And also, we have Gordon White from Rune Soup, and also one of my favorite podcasts. I think you have about like 80-something episodes now. And your podcast is incredibly interesting because while I focus mainly on psychedelics and that whole experience, Mike focuses on somewhat politics and psychedelics. You focus on a bunch of other really paranormal things like magic and the occult and even psychedelics and sometimes you talk about politics and governments and things like that. So the first thing I want to ask you is for the people that are unfamiliar with magic, can you just tell the audience what magic is? Because there's this misconception I think in the public with magic being this evo spell casting which thing that people would would do to themselves or to other people to manipulate the surroundings or thoughts of other people is that accurate or is there something else going on well uh, that's accurate it's a subset i suppose of what we would um consider magic for the purposes of this discussion which i've sort of described before as uh, magic is a culture-specific set of techniques for essentially interacting with your own consciousness and, and presumably other consciousnesses. So when you talk about some of the things we cover on RuneSoup, uh, yes, we do, you know, uh, entheogens and, and so on, because we're really talking about the one enchilada and just kind of depending on which end you eat it from. So why I describe magic as culture-specific uh, sort of sets of consciousness techniques is if you look around the world at different quote-unquote magical systems whether it's Amazonian shamanism or whether it's you know Taoist magic or what have you there's the number of things you can kind of do with it are actually quite conserved like there's not that many categories there's sort of predicting the future talking to the dead or spirits uh, there's visiting uh, other worlds and there's in some sense what I call probability manipulation which is obviously you know practical enchantment so that's how uh, I tend to define magic for people who are coming at it cold now what is your favorite area of your podcast because you're so many categories and you know you have magic of course occult psychedelics politics what is your most interested topic at this moment that's a kind of tough one so i sort of have a, a formula that i go through i grew up i'm i'm back in regional australia now but i grew up in regional australia and when i first found um you know occult books and, and sort of realized this was for me at a fairly early age there was no internet and everyone who wrote these things was in england and i subsequently met most of them the ones that are alive uh but at the time it was this I didn't know what they were like and I have this sort of subtextual goal with the podcast of turning kind of voices into humans so I don't know if I have a favorite category the home base is obviously magic practiced in a northwest European tradition because that's you know my home base I suppose right. uh, but it's uh, what I kind of wanted to do from the outset was to demonstrate that 
as I was, you know, referring back to the enchilada, that we are talking about the one enchilada. It's it's interesting. I, I don't I don't know if you guys listen to Skeptico, but I'm quite friendly with Alex from Skeptico, and he came at that journey from a consciousness science perspective. But if you stick on it for a while, if it's entheogens, if it's consciousness research, if it's the practice of magic, you kind of eventually come around to the realization that you're talking about you know, blind men and the elephant at this point. So that you can't have a discussion about uh, the sort of implications of psychedelia if you're not going to have a discussion about consciousness effects. And if you're having a discussion about consciousness effects, you're having a discussion about, well, what, what are humans' natural consciousness capacities, which is magic, and then you end up having the discussion about, okay, well then, why has power historically been so interested in this forever? I mean, from Sumeria on, why has power been so interested in either suppressing or exploring this? So it's it, it's funny. You kind of all there are many roads into Chapel Perilous if you you know think of it that way. Yeah, I mean it's it's extremely interesting. It's it's really this thing that has become almost kind of cartoonized. You know, it's like we have a tendency. I think the average person has a tendency to think of magic as something that's just pure fantasy, and and there's no real world applications to these kinds of things. Yet, you know, you see they have to they, they come from somewhere, whether it's from our imagination or imagination creating the different forms and facets, like you said, of attacking the enchilada from a different angle. You know, I, I had someone recently on my podcast, uh, Miguel Connor, he hosts one, a podcast called Aeon Bite. It's a Gnostic uh, radio podcast, and he was talking about Gnosticism. And, you know, that's that's kind of another approach, I think, that's leading down the same the same route that we're that we're all seeking, you know, the, the same kind of route that we're all on, whether it be like you said through psychedelics or other other avenues. But I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty interested in in the there's so many different kinds of uh, facets to it. Like there's chaos magic. Do, what 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 specifically is chaos magic? Uh, chaos magic. It, well, it's interesting when you're talking about uh, its its prominence and the sort of ridicule that comes along with a lot of it uh, contemporaneously, this, this sort of thing appears to go in cycles. Like if you just go back 120 years uh, and look between now and, well, then and now, um, there have been multiple sort of fads of of magic and, and occultism and so on. And we're quite clearly in one. So uh, that kind of goes along with it. But chaos magic, as uh, I explore it and practice it and write about it, it emerged in... Um, the north of England and then kind of northern London in the 80s as a response to a lot of, you know, very inside baseball stuff that was going on in the occult world in, in the UK at the time. But on a macro level, it was the um, the internus and fighting and breakdown of, of the 19th century order models, particularly the ones to do with Alistair Crowley, and also some flow-on effect from the 80s coming inevitably right after the 70s, and there's a lot of Age of Aquarius stuff going on. So this group of uh, practicing magicians decided to sort of shake the snow globe and see what works and what doesn't. And can you is the um, is the effect associated with um, Apollo or is it associated with something else? And and really stripping down a lot of the nonsense that accretes over magic to 
uh, an experimental and performative basis and, and essentially having this one yardstick, which has its limitations, but is very good as a necessary starting point, which is, does it work or does it not? So kind of really interrogating the actual practice of it. And it was, it's called Chaos Magic because one of its founders and its sort of preeminent, um, I guess, exponent is a guy called uh, Peter J. Carroll, and he's written loads of books on it. And at the time, if you recall or are aware, um, this is when chaos mathematics was sort of coming to the fore in the 80s as well with the rise of computing and that sort of realization. There was a popular science book called Chaos by James Gleick, which explains uh, at the, what was understood as chaos mathematics at the time. And Pete has a background in science and physics. So basically he says, well, let's call it chaos magic, which is great. And that's what I mean by it. Uh, the term, because chaos is is such an emotional term, and it's certainly, which is why chaos mathematics used it, presumably, um, you also find the term expressed in, you know, tabletop gaming systems, and also uh, in wider politics now, people may use terms like chaos magic, because, you know, time of chaos, and so on. So uh, it's got this it's got a name that means something very specific if you're in the occult world, but if you're not in the occult world, uh, it broadens out to include things that are not actually included in it, if that makes sense. So is our current political situation actually in chaos magic, or is it something that people that are not in magic call it chaos magic because it seems chaotic? Yeah, it's it's sort of like that. There are a couple of people in in sort of I guess Putin's sphere that um, are using the term and uh, or were in his sphere, and they aren't they aren't wow. chaos magicians <laughs> in in the kind of British term of it, right? So uh, in that sense, it's the same thing as witchcraft or uh, any. No one actually owns the term, and it's applied in in different ways. But the chaos magic that you will find in actual occultism has nothing to do with uh, any of that stuff. But they're they're very emotive terms. Like same thing. No one owns the word spell, or you know, enchantment, or or so on. So it's they don't connect. They just have the same name. Right, Mike. <laughs> Ed, hello. Well, you know, I mean, Gordon. this is so. It, this is so. Uh, <laughs> this is so far, Gordon. This is so far out of my knowledge base. But I feel that, you know, just uh, using using kind of what I've known from experimenting with psychedelics and kind of you know embarking on spiritual practices and meditation and things like that, and just kind of expanding my consciousness to accept a you know a diverse realm of of units and games and and things to to kind of construct it's like i i can see i can see the application of of it being used at a very high level and being i mean ultimately to me when i hear when i hear something like that it's like you know you're you're talking about politics and the chaos magic and stuff it's like you know we hear these talks of of political leaders at at you know, doing these ceremonies, skull and bones type things. And it's like, are they conjuring up some kind of sorcerous plans or, or is this just fantastical conspiracy theory that's fun to kind of believe, you know, to imagine, or is there, is there some truth to this kind of stuff? Yeah, I would say it's probably a bit of both. Again, it's an example of, um, uh, of non-overlapping worlds. So if you if you deal with people who are actively and publicly, you know, exploring occultism and magic, they're not um, they're not the kind of people who get invited to Bohemian Grove. But 
historically there has been an interest in going like the most famous example is elizabeth I, whose court was lousy with wizards the most famous one being john Dee, who more or less invented the idea of a british empire but um people are People in power are interested in occultism because it works. Uh, that's how you stay in power. You do the things that work. So right. you see a lot of, it doesn't mean they're all part of some kind of, it certainly doesn't mean they're all part of some kind of secret Thelemic club. Um, it just means, and probably more at a fulfillment level, uh, and we know this through kind of the, the history of the Cold War, things like MK Ultra and MK Often and so on, at, at a fulfillment level, there is an awareness that this stuff works and they're in the business of, you know, running the world. So if it works, you have to be interested in it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily follow. I think a lot of the um, most of the stuff, you know, over 90 percent when we're talking about um, super elite ritual behavior. Um, ritual works, uh, and it, it is actually just how they think, like you know, um, red carpets and 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 parades and so on. They they think ritualistically rather than uh, performing secret rituals that you would find in a computer game. That said, it seems reasonably it is a it's a reasonable contention or assertion to make that at a super super elite level there is a belief system going on that doesn't match uh how the rest of us live our lives uh mm. and that i think is sort of self-evident in in some odd signaling behavior at, at a kind of um yes billionaire and above level but it, it's it's kind of dangerous roads to go down because uh you have to make certain assumptions about whether they're all in in the one bed and whether they all have like it it comes with its own presuppositions to do with how the world is run like is it one little secret cabal running the world and so on and that doesn't seem very likely what you can see is probably uh an awareness that their belief systems aren't the same as as, as us uh down here at this level now i'm not sure about the specifics of the rituals for magic but i know some of them require you to face a certain direction to invoke that spirit at that certain time. I think some you have to smell good or if they burn incense because the spirits, they like things that smell good. And if you stink, it kind of deters them away. And there is also this requirement of your mind having to think about certain things or to have some sort of a mindset to go in with that ritual. Now, is it just that that person, the elite or whoever it might be, is having a positive mindset or having that intention of causing those things to come into effect? Or is it those specific rituals and the direction and the incense and all those props that they're using that are really causing the changes that are going on around them? Or is it both? It's probably closer to to both. I think there is a, a ritual aesthetic. Um, and there's interesting research that has technically, although it satisfies the broader definition, very little to do with magic about this, where if you look at um, Gulf states, they are especially interested. And the same thing, actually, with um, the rise of the sort of billionaire class in China. They're very, very interested in a kind of platonic shape of what royalty or a super elite looks like to the point where, because Britain has loads of leftover royals, like you get this sort of um, 
Prince Charles' third cousin going over to teach um, Arab princesses how to eat sandwiches and and that kind of thing. Like seriously, that these, these kind of things. It just happen. sounds it, so funny, though. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it is ridiculous. But this is the, what I mean by they have a ritual aesthetic, uh, right. because that's what happens when you get to that level in the club. Like they they think and see the world that way. So I think a lot of what people panic about is that. Um, historically there's been, you know, um, you know, psychological operations, which also satisfy the definition of course of magic and, and so on. But I don't think the, uh, the power doesn't quote unquote, the power of people who might be interested in ritual at a super elite level doesn't derive from the ritual or the performance of it. It just comes along with it. Now there's a much wider question as to, well, are you dealing with the spirit world that has, you know, ambassadors at a super elite level that are um, consciously or not fulfilling a physical agenda? And that, speaking of Miguel, that you, you're in full-blown Gnosticism at that point. And, uh, and there's something to be said for at least temporarily interrogating the world with that in mind. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that with, uh, you know, with with these kinds of um, ideas that we that we have about what we're engaging in, you know, it's kind of like how we're willing to calibrate our the level of our belief system. I think has a large impact in in the results that we shape. Uh, in in a sense, you know, I, I think it was you know, Robert Anton Wilson who was famous for saying that you know we kind of create these reality tunnels, and it seems like to me that um, the that the certain kind of uh, setting and set and setting that you would have when taking place in a ritualistic magic um, session, I guess it would be called, is very similar to how someone would engage in, in say, an ayahuasca uh, ceremony. You know, there's certain kinds of things that you would want to do and tobacco, you would want to have tobacco, you would want to maybe wear white so you can attract, you know, white spirits. And and in a sense, it's like all of these things, It's we're, we're kind of creating what we've heard and what we know to put into that, but also we're expecting to get something in return. So it, it's kind of reinforcing that expectation and creating it as long as we're as long as we're believing in that. Does that make sense? Like, I think it that, does, but I'm not sure if that's um, sufficient to describe. Okay. I, I, like, I'm not sure if that's sufficient if you want to use the ayahuasca example. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a very good. Uh, place where well it, it is magic like you know that magic came first that's what it's that's what it is like uh, magic isn't just um computer game stuff right like that's magic and the, and the trouble with that analysis is yeah you come out of it and you go except those things that i went and saw were real right so if you the like if you're going down the hole i guess we're setting up the expectations and that shapes how we experience it it has um some presuppositions like it has what i would consider a faulty science of mind uh underpinning it which one is the separation of of mind and physical to start with and and two the a priori assumption that the spirits aren't real now if you do any of these things for long enough so in one of my books in uh, chaos protocols i have a chapter called becoming invincible which is you have to go and do something that makes you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a reality to these phenomena and one of the examples is taking yourself off to the Amazon and for a week or so and, and, and doing the kind of least worst um, 
Amazonian shamanic experience. But it can be, and the example I gave in the book is, you can also take a couple of friends and an Ouija board and spend the night in an abandoned mental hospital because you will come out of that changed. Like it's not a great way. You won't have a pleasant <laughs> evening, right? Um, but yeah. I don't care. Yeah. I, I don't care because you, you've come out of it with the result, which is, okay, so these things are real. And I find when you see things like... Um, mindfulness meditation and uh, ayahuasca and the interest of those things in Silicon Valley, there's people have a, at that point, a dysfunctional or faulty belief system because they're only halfway there. They've just had these experiences and they can't actually sit with the implications of what that means. Uh, and that I think is one of the benefits of, of kind of pursuing these roads, things like psychedelia and magic, because there is a reality to it. So right. if there's reality to it, it has implications for how the world works. And that's the bit that people um, trip over. And they trip over it because you have to kind of re-examine how you've built the world in your head at that point. But uh, that, I think, is where, I think it's where we're at now. The, 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 the science of mind that we had we, that went along with the imperial expansion in the 19th century and we inherited from Descartes, the mind matter split and, and you used the words earlier, Mike, like, well, it's, it's all fantasy or it's all in your head as one way of people thinking about it, which is fine, except no one's define those words for me, define like what imagination is and fantasy and, and what are they? Because they right. don't belong in a materialist model, like not even on, on the chalkboard can you describe how a brain creates consciousness. So if people sit with those ideas for long enough, all of a sudden they're living in a haunted universe, which is in some sense freaky, but it's also satisfying. Now with magic, it seems like the implication is that, or the assumption is that a lot of elites are using it, whether it's in governments or corporations, and they're summoning these spirits or whatever the case may be to gather more power and authority over people. And that's part of the reason why they're in the positions that they're in today. But one could argue that the people that are in power, say Donald Trump or Mark Zuckerberg or Vladimir Putin, they might have a lot of power and authority over people, but they're not necessarily living a happier life or a better life. As a matter of fact, I would argue that they're more stressed than ever, probably more stressed than the neighbor that's you know living next door, that's living a plain life and has a couple of kids and maybe a farm or whatever. So does magic just conjure power and authority can it also have an effect on happiness? Um, I don't, again, I want to stress that none of the people you just listed, like Trump is technically a magician in that he ascribes to that uh, a lot of that 19th century uh, American positive thinking church stuff, right? So that is, that's magic. That's like the things in my head will match the things in the physical world. Right. That's literally magic, right? But it's not um, cracking open the grimoires and, and sacrificing a goat. Like none <laughs> of them, none of them are doing that. So I just want to emphasize. Uh, and I, the way until you, and again, it's not for everyone, but until you uh, sort of commit, actually, I'm going to learn something about say the Northwest European magical history. I'm going to sit down and work out what, what this is, right? Um, you do have that much more Hollywood-esque view of, of what it is. Um, and there are certainly 
you know, spirit and angel summoning um, components to it. But if you think of magic being a, as I said, like a way a culture explores human kind of natural consciousness capacities, um, that doesn't necessarily follow when you're in Mongolia with the shamans or, you know, uh, clever men in, in Australian Aboriginal like tribes and so on. It, it's not the same category there, but it is still magic. So I don't think it has, you, we kind of get that from fiction, right? I don't think it has some sort of inherent um, possession of the one ring power that kind of erodes your life and, and makes things really, really bad. It can absolutely mess up your life, particularly once it starts to work. Because, and that seems to be a feature of it rather than a bug. Um, because all of a sudden you thought your whole life, you thought you were playing netball and you wake up and it's cricket. And so things go wrong. Uh, and that's, yeah. uh, that's kind of one of the things that happens with it. But yeah, we just, if, if we think of magic on a global basis, it takes a lot of the Hollywood drama away temporarily so that you can look at it and go okay well something else is going on here because you know all of peru isn't satanic or something right right so is there is there like um uh, would there be a hierarchy then within within these kinds of areas i mean i guess within magic is there is there a hierarchy is there some kind of ultimate top position to be striving for or some or some kind of uh use of it or application of it that would be the most noble or, or moral or righteous or whatever? Um, not again, it does, it sort of fails on a, on a global basis. There are certainly, uh, okay. invented clubs, particularly in the 19th century where you got like the golden dawn and the order Templi Orientis and so on that sort of built a system that looks broadly like Freemasonry so that you have, you, you start at level zero and you move up. Right. So you can find them contained in that. You also find in what I would consider more authentic, um, traditions outside, um, you know, European influence where you, you have multi-generational lineages in Africa and China and so on, where you can get to, um, if you're in it long enough, you're really, really good at it and you pass that on. But in terms of goals, it kind of comes back to um, the same goal as psychedelia and even mysticism. And, and to paraphrase Terence McKenna, the purpose of life is to familiarize yourself with the after death state so that the process mm. of dying doesn't come as a shock to the system. That's the prize at the end. Well, that's the prize at the beginning of magic. Once you realize that however you want to describe it, spirits in a spirit world are real, you're kind of you're playing your life in God mode, uh, because hmm. you don't die. I mean, you, you will expire, but you, it, it really, so you're playing, you're playing a, a sort of, you're playing an infinite game, whereas yeah. other, other people are playing kind of a more limited finite game. So there is kind of a, a, a superiority over people. If you, if you have, if you're seeing life and you're seeing reality in that way, right? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say superiority because um, if you're living in a universe where you you have things like a spirit world and meaning and so on, you don't know why those people came to Earth or what their journeys are or or what have you. So it's not a superiority thing. And also, you have the weird, quiet confidence that comes from. I guess presumably religious people have the same thing, where um, even you you might have a friend who is materialist as the day is long. And you can be quietly confident that you can, you know, um, tease him for it when you're both dead. And uh, right. and so you, you kind of uh, it's it's not a superiority thing. It, it's very much like 
it matches a mystic or spiritual journey in the sense that it really is about you exploring the universe that is you, which is the universe, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I guess what I, where I was getting at is it seems to me like, you know, we live in this kind of in, in a world where, uh, you know, there are so many diverse ways of, of going about and, and, and taking practice in whatever we choose to practice. So it seems like there would be some kind of the way that, you know, politics has sort of like a, you know, a liberal Democrat, uh, conservative, Republican, you know, there's all these factions. And so I was wondering if if that would be if that would be the case as well, if there's, you know, do, are there certain kinds of people that are practicing magic that think, you know, I mean, I would, I would assume yes, because I think it's natural that humans kind of feel that their way of doing things is kind of the correct way. So does, does that make sense what I'm saying? Or? Oh yeah. There's squabbles and, and, <laughs> uh, and groups and, and it does get pretty intense. It actually, I mean, for the most part, it broadly matches because, you know, everyone who's doing it that's alive is a human. Uh, right. It broadly matches. And, it, and in fact, obviously, as with most kind of groups, I suppose, uh, in the last little while, you do get um, some unsavory types in, in magic, just as you do in the world uh, at, at either end, mostly one end of, of a political spectrum. And that's historic. I mean, it, it matches culture. So it has those same challenges at the moment. Uh, if you, Again, if we're talking about, uh, not that there is necessarily a Western magical culture in the sense that we all, you know, go to the same meeting, um, but with that conceit, uh, there is the same uh, squabbling, uh, from a political perspective that you'll see in uh, any other group at the moment. And some of it is pretty intense. Like there, there are, there have historically been like some, you know, really, really uh, racist exponents of um, different forms of magic and, and, and fascistic exponents of it um, throughout history. Like uh, Julius Evola, who's a early 20th century Italian modernist who basically mushed Italian fascism and, and occultism together and so on. So it's always there for the same reason that um, we kind of touched on earlier with Elizabeth I and D and so on. This stuff works. And if you're in the business of, you know, um, being a boot stomping on our faces, then you might be interested in it. But um, it, it has those same political challenges. It also has the same idiot squabblings that any kind of specialist or special interest category has. Uh, the same thing happens with astrology. The same thing happens with psychedelia. Uh, you still get some super idiot, like really, really minutiae squabblings about stuff where you think this is the best use of our time at this point right yeah yeah it's like um i mean i'm definitely in my political leanings you know like more towards the anarcho-capitalist side of things and it's just there's so much just arguing about it's like being on a sports team you know in basketball there's like five people that play on the court and you know we're we're arguing we're like the guys on the bench arguing who's going to get the most time when we go in you know it's like guys we're yeah. not even like we're not even like a big mass of people yet like we can't be fighting with each other i think that you know so would 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 investment in learning about magic be be worth you know uh worth it for the average person for the average person would they would it be worth it for them to take an interest in this sort of thing and go down this path i like that's such an anarcho-capitalist way of describing it would investment <laughs> be worth it is does this deliver <laughs> sufficient roi um 
<laughs> yeah, you got me. Yeah, I'm not squabbling about it, but yeah. No, no, it's cool. Like uh, this is, I mean, kind of coming back to it, where um, magic. There will be people listening to this who are like, "Holy shit! Yeah. Uh, I did not know that this was a thing. This is like, this could be my thing. Like, not like, oh, I might, I might have to look at it." There, are, there are people out there who are like really vibrating now, going, "Oh goodness, did not realize." This was an option. Nobody told me this. And there are other people out there going, this guy's a lunatic. That's fine. Magic <laughs> is not for everyone. Uh, it's right. very much a calling. It never, it, again, you look at it on a worldwide basis and outside of um, some like sub-Saharan African tribes at the moment where, frankly, two-thirds of them are shamans, like by the time they're uh, at grandmother and, and grandfather level. But as a general rule, you get one witch or shaman per village, right? And it's some, it's like th- people meddle with it. Uh, and it it does, it is a calling in a, not a calling sense. Um, you have to resonate with it. And it's just how you experience the world. So if you're listening to it, if you're listening to this and going, oh, I could, I feel like I could be quite into it, then it absolutely, it makes the entire universe taste better because you've sort of, found how you want to experience it so in that sense it is but if you if you mean specifically are these techniques a useful or dare i say well they're useful but are they an essential tool set for um living a kind of individualized anarcho-capitalist life uh and and building you know what comes next and and so on not necessarily the the mindset helps so being aware of magic and being aware of magical worldviews absolutely does but you don't need to um head over to etsy and start buying candles if that's <laughs> kind of the question <laughs> now right. in order to be magic and to practice magic you have to be open to the idea or to actually believe in not believe but wholeheartedly know that these are spirits in the world and they are in fact real and they move in and out of us and they are invisible but they are part of this universe and would you say that's an accurate uh assumption to be open to magic at first no it's the opposite and that's one of the creepy things about it so going back to pete carroll who's you know officially as far as i'm concerned the founder of chaos magic he wrote magic works in practice but not in theory and that's the weird thing about it it's the same as like i i don't need to i'll have a better experience um if i ingest psilocybin mushrooms um but it'll still work like if i'm open to it and, and looking forward to exploring this it's going to go better but it's still going to work so that's the really bizarre thing about it people will do it as a lark and that's why you can you know become invincible by overnighting in an abandoned mental hospital with an ouija board um but the mindset you build the mindset based on the fact that this stuff shouldn't work but nevertheless um quite often it appears to uh it it potentially works better but most of the people so going back to my podcast um the the question i ask everyone the first time they're on is were you a weird kid because 90 percent maybe even more of people who've ended up in a um, magical or spiritual world had these experiences and were looking for the framework to interpret them so they they you know might have had whatever the experiences were um sleep paralysis, hag attacks as a kid, lived in a haunted house, whatever it happens to be, and they'd been looking for it. 
So that's kind of what I mean by it's maybe not for everyone. Uh, it, in some sense, it picks you. Uh, it is it is for everyone in the sense that no one is you know turned away, but it's the explanation comes after it rather than before. Wow. Yeah. What, what do you think? What do you think about magic in popular culture? Um, you know, I think that right now we're seeing the rise in popularity of of the magical kind of uh, superhero movies that are coming out, the Guardians of the Galaxy and the Doctor Strange comic books and stuff. You know, what is what, what, is there an is there a um, I don't know. Is 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 this is this really something maybe that's manifesting outwardly in 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 hoping to capture a larger audience to be more welcome to the idea of magic? Like, is this is this magic actually happening? Like, to to cause this to happen, to spread magic? And if so, is it is it an accurate representation of some of the themes and some of the um, you know practices and whatnot within within this popular culture we're seeing? It's a great question, and it's a huge one because the answer is sort of all of the above, plus in some historic instances deliberate manipulation. But it, this kind of comes back to what I was saying about the science of mind. Uh, does a, a Jungian interpretation of what's going on is that this is a kind of um, upwelling of magical motifs in a collective unconscious, so that it does uh, occupy the dreams of, of creatives and and so on. So I actually think that's a part of it. And I also think there are, there are a number of different models for how you look at trends in uh, popular culture. Grant Morrison has one where you kind of have an 11-year solar cycle, um, and essentially every 11 years you end up in, in a magical world versus a, a sort of scientific one or so on. And there's something broadly to that. I have a modified one, which is you never get good science fiction films and good magic films at the one time. Uh, and if you think of the early noughties with Lord of the Rings, if you look at the sci-fi stuff that was going on, it's terrible. And um, But I think we're moving into – well, I think we're about two-thirds of the way through a magic phase. So eventually it will exhaust itself because then inevitably the other stuff comes along with it, which is, well, these these magic motifs and these magic films are popular. It's Hollywood. Let's make a million of them, right? So there is obviously a crowd-following component to it. Uh, so you end up with all these different layers. And, and at a baseline one, I think part of it is, uh, is something to do with you, – you need a decent model of the mind to – start having these ideas and there's and you know Jung's one is is perfectly serviceable um for this point in time so I do think there's absolutely something to it as for its accuracy or so on well this is if you want to talk about like squabbles um one of the saddest possible ones in the kind of magic and, and neo-pagan world is is whining that depictions of of witches in the craft are inaccurate yeah it's because it's a film like you know <laughs> it's fine it's it's a different medium and and i as for the themes that they explore um magic doesn't have themes specifically uh the themes that they're exploring are again coming back to a Jungian model you're dealing with archetypes here you're dealing with hero's journey you're dealing with all that stuff which is universal rather than magic specific it's just explored in a magical mode which i'm all for i think i think and i don't actually like comic book movies that much but as a general rule uh, any more of that kind of magical realism uh, fantastical stuff that we can get is uh, coming back to it it makes the universe taste better you you just kind of it uh it's there's more for 
the your wider mind to digest than in uh if that was expressed elsewhere as far as i'm concerned because you're kind of dealing with archetypes and and big shapes that are sort of universally shared across human minds so it's yeah it's good frankly let's enjoy the next few years of it nice i want to ask you a question regarding the the thing you said previously where you said you would kind of cast a spell and then not really expecting it to work and then all of a sudden it appears in front of your eyes and then boom you have that sudden click and realization that that was magic and that happens to me all the time when I think about something and I'll give you an example and it's a really stupid materialistic example, but there's this Nike shoe that's always sold out and I was thinking about it. Oh, wow, it'd be cool to kind of get that shoe, but I would never get that shoe because it's sold out the minute it's released or whatever. And I have this really innocent and I don't know if innocent is the right way to put it, but I have no expectations. I'm just thinking well, it would be really cool it would be badass if i got that shoe but probably not going to get it so i have that thought and i laugh a little inside and i move on with my day never thinking about it again and kind of just let go of that idea or that desire actually not even a desire was there it was just a thought that it would be cool but then something happens and then the universe aligns itself or whatever and then that shoe would become available to me and this happens throughout my life where I think about something, I don't really have any weight on it, and then all of a sudden it comes through. But the moment I put weight and desire and lust in those thoughts, then they would fall apart. And it kind of goes against the, the philosophy of the secret where they tell you to think about those things with positive thoughts and in turn, it kind of puts so much weight on those desires that it actually deters them away from my field. So is this a form of magic or is this just kind of a coincidence, do you think? I Well, Ed, I don't think that's a bad example at all. At all. I think that's a really good example <laughs> uh, because what we kind of opened the discussion with the definition of magic, that it's a culture-specific exploration of consciousness effects. So you have observed that your mind has some kind of um, relationship to the exterior world, um, just using those terms for it. Like you go, that's odd. And this is what I mean by it working in practice and not in theory, because you're, the kind of light touch, forget about it um, process that you've just described now that you kind of know, well, now that you have the suspicion that there might be something to this, what magic can do is is uh, say, well, as a matter of fact, there is, and here's and we've been playing with it for thirty thousand years as a species. So here are some tools that can make that work slightly better. And in and in that case, inevitably, it's sigil magic in the twenty first century, which is sort of what I'm known for. Uh, and there is a process that broadly matches your experience, Ed, but can work better. Uh, based on hard-won experience, which is a, a sigilization process. And people tend to do that one to start with as a lark. They're like, ha, 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 I'm going to do a sigil because I want that job I know I'll never get. And then someone gets it, and they're like, oh, shit. Uh, and it's the results. It, 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 you, you use the shoe, and everyone's apologetic with their results, and that's kind of baked into it. I find fascinating, right? Because uh, there's a the best titled book on ufology that's actually – a terrible book is called I Know What I Saw. 
and and it kind of captures that idea of someone who's and ironically in ufology they clearly don't know what they've seen but uh, it captures the experience which is i know to my bones this was something and i know my description of it is terrible and that pretty much is someone's first experience when they kind of mess about with practical enchantment it works and it'll be something like, and I got that shoe that I've been trying to get for a couple of months, but couldn't. And if you're hearing that cold, you're like, this is the dumbest story. Like, what are you even talking about? But you know what you saw, Ed. Like, you know to your right. bones that that was weirder than it should have been. So that's, I mean, that's why it works in practice. And then now, now you're stuck in a universe where, okay, so my mind in some sense has a relationship, an affective relationship to the exterior world. What does that mean? Are they the same thing? Is it, you know, and, and that's where you kind of build the cosmology afterwards. So I, I generally recommend people go and have some super weird experience, whatever it is, if they haven't had one, because after that, there's no getting the toothpaste back in the tube. You're, um, you're living in a magical universe, even if you're not practicing magic, but it's a great example. I might even steal it. <laughs> now, how do you live in this materialistic culture that we are in today while carrying that mindset of, spirits and magic because that's what i find really hard to do we have to survive in this marketplace meanwhile everybody around us most of them do not subscribe to this kind of stuff i mean you tell them about magic or psychedelics they'll tell you you're crazy or you're living in some fantasy world but inside of your heart you know deep down these things are real and we're just not exploring it enough as a culture how do you live in this culture of materialism and capitalism and big governments and all that good stuff while carrying this magical mindset um you just don't talk about it like it's a glass <laughs> half full glass half empty uh component because like you you now have personal experience that you have some kind of let's just be dramatic and call them magical powers ed you're like a shoe wizard uh, <laughs> If you are operating in a world, this kind of comes back to the gamesmanship thing. If you're operating in a world or competing for people with jobs, for jobs that um, don't think this is real and you know that it is and have some facility with it, well, it's a win. You should shut up and get the job. So as to how one operates in a, um, in a deranged and, and, whatever system i don't know how people do it without magic rather than uh with and that's essentially it i mean it, you do you just don't talk about it you, you talk about it amongst friends if you will or, or shows like this but you're under no obligation to wake up the entire world uh it doesn't it doesn't have that kind of coming back to the morality thing it doesn't have that morality baked into it and uh um that, that's been my soul for it anyway and i wrote a whole book on it wow that's a great mindset. what's the name of the book that's Chaos Protocols. This is the one that has becoming invincible in it, uh, and it's it's essentially how it's essentially magical techniques for how we live at you know this stage of of capitalism because we're all kind of navigating that exact same toxic process. Great, and then you you can get that at RuneSoup.com. Uh, it's uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, whatever you like. Cool. It's a, it's oh, a nice. nice book. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Got to check that out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it it is it it can be almost sort of a, a kind of um very interesting experience. I think that some people, you know, when we're when we're born into this world and we're living this experience that we call you know our our subjective uh, life, that 
we have these, you know, I was, I assume you were a weird kid. I was a weird kid. I mean, Ed was definitely a weird kid. I'm not weird at um, all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's like, you have these kinds of Did you of grow strength. up in a shoe, Ed? <laughs> Actually, yeah, my Chinese up, name yeah. is, uh, part of my Chinese name is Shu. So, ah, yeah. there so there, there's a synchronicity there. <laughs> I do magic. It's perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But you're having these, we have these weird experiences, I guess, or you're just, you know, you're exposed to this greater version of, of consciousness and it, we don't really necessarily know what to make of them. Uh, how, is there, what, what's your take on like why some people have, I mean, is it just completely random that some people are more open to having these experiences at a younger age and some people just aren't susceptible to, to this, to, 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 to this kind of opening? I, you know, this is just the flimsiest of guesses because what you're essentially asking is like, um, you know, how does, why why does the universe work the way it does, right? So, yeah, uh, I want the big answers, Gordon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, what will we do for the rest of the hour? You know, (laughs) yeah. Um, If you could, okay, so let's just, this is an oversimplification, but it's a good one. If you consider the sort of, uh, majority magical worldview around the planet. It is a, it is that the universe is, in some sense, a uh, living organism experiencing itself, uh, and that is you can kind you can kind of squint down and see something. Uh, words to that effect in the Amazon. You can see that in uh, India. You can see that wherever you want. It's like that's just a nice way of thinking the universe is a, an evolving organism that is experiencing itself and, and we are kind of part of it. So that is generally my fallback on. So why are some people like this and some people like that? It's so that the universe experiences it. I think people who are magically or mystically inclined are um, potentially nerve clusters in, in that experience um, because you you can kind of send the message back, if you will, in, in, in a cleaner way. But as for the uneven distribution of, of you know, magical interest and magical talent, firstly, it's um, pretty much confined to the 21st century materialist West because everywhere else in the world um, didn't make the idiotic mistake of, of separating mind and matter uh, and, and deciding then that nothing but the physical exists. It's, it's sort of an idea virus. It's moronic. Uh, but the good news is it at the moment only affects about 8% of the planet's population. The rest of them already live in worlds with ancestor altars and ghosts and, and so on. It's just us in a, in a Western world coming to terms with essentially a, a hijack of what I think is a uh, is our natural way of experiencing the universe. And and so in that sense, that's my guess. It's something to do with how the universe wants to experience things. And the good news and bad news is that um, the re-enchantment of the world, which is kind of like the broad mission statement of of the podcast and the books and, and the premium membership and so on, is a, is a localized event because most of the world didn't disenchant, uh, but ours did. So I think that's that's where I settle on on the distribution of, of, of interest in magic. Yeah, I like, I, I like that. And I think that there's, um, I would like to believe that there's like, you know, the, the force of, of, of consciousness in the enchanted world is targeting those, those clusters and trying to kind of, I guess, wake people up to bring us back to that enchanted world, because that's just something that fits 
for the the whole. That's something that just is is like you said, makes things taste better. It's something that that clicks more. We can move more in harmony when there's more people living in in that enchanted world. So there's this. I would like to imagine it as kind of this calling. Um, and I guess there's no really way to prove that, right? But it sounds no. Nice. It's it's an experience, but also yeah. I, I would I'd widen it out to include things other than humans in that inevitably in a, in a spirit model. Um, so I would most of the time broadly describe myself as animist. And if you look at not just humans, I have this kind of phrase, which is spirits on a mission. And uh, ayahuasca is a very good example of that, um, given its impact in the last 15 years. It's almost like she got up in the jungle and say, right, if you want something done, you got to do it yourself and then tour yeah. around the world. <laughs> so it's not just us doing the, re or, or being woken up or doing the re-enchantment. Again, once you've, once you've had an experience, that kind of confronts you with the reality of the spirit world, you are you are living with models that allow for that to happen, and, and I mean it more or less literally. Like I, I'm not, this isn't a poem. I mean, uh, if you've experienced ayahuasca, you can like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a spirit. So you go, okay, well, look at what it's done in the last twenty years, uh, and and that's the kind of bigger universe that is kind of waiting after those first few shoe spells. I think it's cool that Mike asked a question where you think about the kids having these weird experiences or paranormal uh, activities happening around them. I listened to an episode on Mysterious Universe, which is a really cool podcast, and it actually talked about these kids having psychedelic experiences or seeing UFOs or ghosts or um, sleep, what do you call that, sleep paralysis? Sleep paralysis. And yeah. things like that. And then they would tell their parents, but most of the parents are in – this materialistic mindset that they've been brought up in and they would just brush it off and tell the kids, no, you didn't see anything. There was nothing. And the kids would sometimes see more of those things, but they would get denied by the parents of that experience. And when the kids grow up, they're having psychological problems dealing with these experiences because they want to be acknowledged for those experiences, but also nobody's giving them credit. Everybody's calling them crazy or a liar or it's just your imagination but deep down they know it's real so there's this real health consequence when western materialism comes into play into our ideology it's actually affecting people worldwide that are having these paranormal experiences but if you talk to other cultures and if you have kids having these experiences they might be future shamans of that village or whatever the case may be. They might hold some kind of a special power that other people might not have or knowledge. So I think you guys made some great points about the kids and also about the indoctrination of um, materialistic science, deeming nothing is real beyond just the physical. And I think that's such a, a toxic mindset that we have to snap out of. Of course, I don't think that we should go crazy and say that, oh yeah, there's, you know, aliens living amongst us. And or of course there might be, but I think there has to be a balance where we can strike of materialis materialism and also spirituality. And I think the the scale is all the way to materialism at this moment in time. But I just can't wait for the tides to turn and to go back to more of a balanced view because I feel like it's just a matter of time before we discover something or we find out more 
of the universe and more that's inside of us that we start to wake up to the fact that there's more things out there than just this table or this laptop, but there's something beyond that. Do you, do you, Ed, do you think that that, uh, oh, do you think that you want to see that basically happen on a massive scale or, because I think that what you just said can happen for individuals. I think individuals can have that kind of awakening to themselves. But I, 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 I was just curious that, are you saying that this like discovery, we're going to discover, uh, you know, something for the general population and it'll go mainstream and it will blow up and it will go viral and, and it will, it will be the kind of defining moment of our times. Is that what you were kind of getting at? I don't know if I'm trying to say that, but of course that would be really cool if you see an alien land on the white house lawn and like the independence day, right. that would be badass. Okay. But I think right now we have this almost like this government branch of science that's laying everything out for us. If you look at R and D and where money is going, it's all going towards science and science is getting that money from corporations. So science and corporations have this very close relationship that nobody really talks about. And everything is basically ran via capitalism and materialistic science. Now, just because materialistic science hasn't discovered something doesn't mean it's false, but that's the mindset that we carry today where we teach that in schools and we teach that in universities and kids will grow up having that mentality and having a closed mind to anything but materialism. And I think that could be a problem. And I think it's already been a problem in today's world, but I'm, I'm not saying we should abandon science altogether. I think it's a, it's a great method. But, but what you're doing there, Ed, is con you're conflating materialism and science, and you shouldn't. Materialism is a premise of science, not mm -hmm. a finding, and it's been completely falsified. So when you say finding a balance between materialism and something else, I don't think so. I think it needs to be ejected into the sun because it's wrong and it's it's not actually science like uh science is is a method of interrogating reality materialism is the 19th century victorian belief that nothing but the physical exists which has been repeatedly falsified even by scientists so and it's just very interesting that um you touched on something quite important which is you have this um uh, on unholy alliance between um, particularly the military and 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 corporate in the in the production of scientific knowledge this the, the public uh, witch finders that we have at the moment military contract former military contractors like Bill Nye who isn't a scientist he's literally mm -hmm. a former military industrial <laughs> Wait, contractor. Is he? Yeah, that's, oh, wow. his whole career before going on TV was that. Um, he's ruined a lot of childhoods. <laughs> good. Good. Um, but you have a, a skeptic movement like Psycop and so on running through the 70s that was deep state funded to tell people that this is all poppycock, while at the same time you have a deep state sinking millions into remote viewing and astral travel and working out ways to debrief dead CIA agents using Ouija boards and everything in the post-war um Everything behind the curtain in the post-war is magic, and everything outside of it is this stuff doesn't exist. And you think, what an interesting combination of messages <laughs> we have when we look back over the second half of the 20th century. So I think most of the um, this stuff isn't real is, is by design, because it's not only real, it's actually very easy to do. That was one of the experiences the remote viewers had, 
when you know looking at Soviet sites in uh, the 70s, which was one um, Soviet psychic shoulders, uh, soldiers showed up obviously during the vision and so on, but it was populated with other beings, and pretty much anyone can do it. Now that, if you're in the na national security game, is a disaster. You have to tell people the opposite. You can't let, like have everyone be a psychic spy because you could be. You know, uh, there's some very interesting and alarming, frankly, politics as to why we're told one thing whilst we piss millions uh, behind the curtain into something else. And uh, and that's one of the things I think people resist at the moment is um, I, I, I on record as saying the most interesting magical development or school or discovery that happened in the 20th century didn't even happen in magic like it happened during the cold war in underground bases and behind curtains and, and so on where they they kind of worked out that this stuff is real and there are methods of interacting with it now who is teaching this i mean where did they gather this information from that's a very interesting question uh a number of polyglot sources immediately after the war. Um, obviously, when you're talking about psychedelics and so on, you have Nazis like Walter Dornberger, who came over and um, was a, a big part of being responsible, along with Sidney Gottlieb, for like dispensing LSD to all these counterculture heroes and so on. So you have a Nazi science angle. You have what, presumably, whatever Roswell was, and I'm not quite sure it was a, a, a crashed UFO. Um, you have sort of a continued interest in these things and again it's kind of like ed in the shoe like if you do it once you realize there's something to this now imagine having that realization in 1950 and then being given unlimited money and the ability to kill with impunity um how good would you be at this stuff by 2017 Pretty damn good. And that, <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of this, the things that we've, after, um, you know, the church committee inquiry into MK Ultra and so on, there's a lot of stuff in the truth sera, radar development, um, propulsion system world that doesn't pass the sniff test unless you put it together with the idea that they're actually uh, looking at something far more alarming that will never come out. Uh, and that's, I think, also, I think that's why ufology was invented. I think the idea of little green men from Mars is air cover for a lot of this experimentation. And we're just at that point now of kind of unpicking uh, as best we can, um, like, or at least getting squinting down to at least a, uh, an, an initial view of what was actually going on. So are you saying ufology is kind of this reverse psychology mind fuck on people because normally people see a ufo and they would say oh my god it's a ufo and they'll tell their friends and their friends would be like no it's just an aircraft you're seeing things and of course that's what the government wants you to think right according to that program like they actually want you to think it's a ufo not a government spacecraft yeah mostly when people see a flying saucer um you, your first thought needs to be alien because you're too far away to read the raytheon branding on the side like most of those toys are ours um and that's in the cold war and i get it like the cold war is what it was uh if you look at as to why there are you know repeated proven examples of, of cointel and disinfo agents and monitoring of, of ufologists all through its kind of peak period in the 60s and 70s uh, it is because it's a very very good 
cover story. It's a masterpiece of, of COINTEL when you think about it, because it's a cover story for the experimental aircrafts that you're building, because people will think it's an alien, and then you get to deny that they're aliens. It's brilliant that's, when you think about it. It's horrible, but it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But is so is it do you do you feel that the, these people that are like to me it seems like like I'm I'm very invested in the idea of of human beings living in in kind of voluntary situations and in, in communities of like-minded people tribal settings where there's kind of a shamanic style uh leadership quality or a, a leadership quality of a chief you know where the, but we don't we don't have that really in in our western world i guess it's more of you know these politicians these military leaders these these crony you know plutocrats and oligarchs are like they're the ones that you know claim to be the the chiefs or the leaders yet they're they've cut off the rest of us the tribe or whatever as from the the knowledge source from the the experimenting and the tinkering uh, obviously to protect their own interests um but do you think that do you think that there is a a, a singular kind of nefarious agenda or do you think that there it's more of just kind of keeping things hush hush for the people that are up there that are tinkering, experimenting, and expanding uh, into things that that they want to just make sure that the average person doesn't really get get a hold of. Well, I'm a soon to be certified permaculture designer, so I'm with you on the kind of um, post capitalist social uh, collections, how we live together in in a much more satisfying world. So I'm with you on that. As for the single there i don't think there's never a single agenda like in anything um again just to mention pete carroll is he wrote once any conspiracy without internal conspiracies will rule the world and that's probably true uh, i do think there are projects so i do think at um the sort of anglo-american elite for want of a better term or the atlanticists or so on certainly have a project uh, but I don't think there is a worldwide agenda. I think there are agendas for the world that are being pushed most vigorously by an Anglo-American elite. And it does it is probably scarier than people are willing to think about. Um, yeah. So but, is that so sorry, Gordon, I just just to say that's that's kind of, I guess, maybe what I should have articulated a little bit better. It's like, is there a, is should we really be frightened that these people are doing these these things, especially this uh, Anglo-American elite? Like you said, the ones that are being most aggressive about it. Is there is this really a, a super duper frightening thing to be worried about? Well, I think the situation is too serious to afford us the luxury of being scared. Um, mm -hmm. So. Okay. Uh, no, I don't think we should be frightened. I don't think we should wait for Superman to save us. Um, I'm sure you probably agree with that, Mike. I think yeah. there is, there's a, anything, I kind of have a heuristic for it, like, but, um, in your life, anything that can be decentralized, like any, look at it and go, can this be decentralized further? Yes or no. And if it's a yes, down it goes. Um, I think there are ways you can just start because the good and the bad news is well the bad news is there is an agenda the good news is it's not going to work it's mostly dead on arrival I and mean, we're seeing the end of the american empire well the beginning of the end of the american empire now right the trouble is they don't go quietly they don't be like well we gave it a shot here are all your rights back uh, <laughs> it doesn't work like that at all so this is when they actually get the most dangerous but it's also we've never had the kind of 
um, technological, and in some states, talking about the US, in some states, like legal framework to be able to start doing these things. If you're looking at the rollback of different drug laws, if you're looking at the rise of digital currencies, like there are the pieces of your supercar are waiting to be built. And we just have to build it. You can't just, you know, wait for the right candidate to get into the office. I think there's something structural coming back to you had Miguel on the show and he and I sort of talk about this. Um, Gnosticism is a very good map. It may not be the territory, but there is something structural about power. And this is probably music to your, you guys ears where it doesn't ever work. Like a centralization process leads to the same thing every time. So you're never going to like, we can't just wait to have the right, your preferred candidate uh, at the top of a centralizing death machine because it's still a centralizing death machine. So I, I don't like, I don't know if we should be afraid. I do think we should uh, invest and investigate our alternatives with more urgency perhaps, but yeah, the, you know, you don't die. So what are you afraid of? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, sure, of course. But but that someone might say, well, you know, there's still uh, there, there's still meaning to be played in the game that we're in. You know, it's like because you could have that kind of apathetic attitude where you're like, who gives a shit? Right. So that that's actually interesting because I feel like this can be applied to the spiritual kind of community as well. And Ed, I know you have experience with this. It's like people kind of grasping to identify themselves uh, with us with a particular kind of way of being and and sort of living within like a very serious rigidity of that but it's like you know what what why like you know this isn't this is not necessarily life and death i mean it's it is and isn't actually it's very it's maybe you could expand further on that because there if if we if we truly do believe that like you know it's we we don't die so it's like there there is a choice to to choose to engage in, in life and not to be apathetic about it because, you know, it goes on and it's infinite. Um, that is the eternal challenge of all <laughs> mystic groups around the world. That's been a challenge for Buddhists. That's been a challenge for Christian mystics, wherever you want to go. Um, and coming back to Gnosticism, and I, I, I'm doing that deliberately because I think I found the solve there as well. Wherever you want to go, the, um, the tension between realizing that you are there's a tension between realizing you're playing an infinite game and caring for the people in the limited game yourself included at the same time once all of a sudden you're playing cricket rather than netball that um very few people have solved there's a really nice way of thinking about it. Well, I think it's nice because uh, I've Miguel and I are friends. I've been on his show a couple of times and he's been on mine. Uh, he was talking about, I think it was the Valentinians, but there is a there were a group of Gnostics who one of the reasons that they would achieve Gnosis, so essentially wake up, right? So um, one of the reasons that they would do this process, like a, a ritual meditation process to wake people up is that the more people they took out of the system, the more likely it is the entire universe was going to come crashing down. So it's sort of a, it's almost a matrix model where humans are trapped in, in, in an, in an artificial universe um, by the demiurge to run it um, as batteries, essentially, although they didn't really have that term in 300 AD. Uh, but uh, the more people they unplugged, the weaker the system became until eventually 
waking people up would destroy the entire universe and we would return to the pleroma. Now, it sounds really nice until you think about it and go, that's intense. That is a really <laughs> quite like, here, here are these happy vegetarian like meditators <laughs> and uh, they're, they're actively trying to destroy the whole universe. <laughs> Bond yeah. villains don't even do that, but it's a really <laughs> pleasing idea. Like uh, it's, it's, it's the tension. I think it's a good solve for the tension, which is, um, once you realize that you don't die, the first thought is, well, fuck it, nothing even matters. And you go, well, there are still children like dying of starvation. So where where do you kind of um, do that? And there's not a very good solve for it other than being aware of it. And this is a kind of a very Western spiritual challenge. It's it's a kind of Western spirituality very often is a, is a privileged position kind of thing. So if you have the money to go to a five-day meditation retreat in Big Sur and um, and and talk to your guardian angels and, and find out that actually everything's love and um, the physical universe is an illusion, you go, that's I'm glad you had a nice holiday. You know, that's really <laughs> nice. Um, in the meantime, there are people actually struggling. And that has to be solved on an individual basis. You actually have to, that's part of the spiritual quest is to find your infiniteness and also remember the finite and uh, and i guess it expresses differently for each person wow that's that's i think what you're talking about is the balance of being of the world but not being in the world but not of the world so pretty much you don't have to engage in all those games just like nowadays i see a lot of infighting in the in in america when it comes to politics and you know it's a fun fight and if you're engaging in it on one side or the other it's fun it's you know you're fighting for a team and it feels righteous to defend something or to attack people that might not share your ideology but then if you get too sucked into that game you might lose yourself and become the the team that you're fighting against and I just find it way easier and more comfortable to sit back and look at the whole chessboard. And instead of being a chess piece, you become the chess player and move the chess pieces. Of course, I'm not at that level to move the chess pieces because I'm not that powerful yet. But it's okay to take yourself out of those roles of the chess piece for a second or maybe for a day, maybe for a weekend and spend some time just observing the entire chessboard. And I feel like a lot of people aren't doing that, but instead they're engaging themselves in those battles that ultimately means nothing because at the end of the day, your effect on the whole chessboard is very minute and it may not even affect anything. The only thing that's affecting is really yourself and your internal mindset. And the more you fight in this battle, even though you're winning and you're right, it really serves you no no good at the end of the day because everybody's trying to be right. Everybody's trying to prove the other side wrong. But what is being right really is, you know, what is what 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 is about being right that we care so much about? I think it's about yeah, yeah. our yeah, primal instincts and and maybe somehow our Christian roots in the Western civilization where we have to be in the correct we have to be following the uh the the rules or the ten amendments or whatever the case may be so just being right 
really does nothing. I mean, on paper, you're doing something cool or, or righteous, I guess. But when it comes down to it, or when you actually sit down with the notion of being correct or being right, it, it really is meaningless. It is. And also, it's just bad strategy. Like, um, this is kind of in the book as well. But uh, the fact that, particularly in the US, although it, it will come for other countries as well, um, it's sort of there for Britain, the the polarization is a symptom. Like, one side doesn't win here. They both kind of go over the cliff, punching each other in the dick. That's, <laughs> um, that's where we are now. So, um, that I've kind of used a different example, but it's coming back to what you were saying Ed, about um, the chessboard, which is like, do you want to be the water molecules in the wave or do you want to surf the wave? Right. Because um, we are, you can't, this isn't the point in the timeline where you fix these things. You, you can't like argue the other side to logic, whatever side you're coming from. It, it doesn't, it doesn't end that way. And uh, also it kind of comes back to why we just need to start building our own stuff now, because that game has longer to run but the conclusion is foregone and it's it's not good and and do you want to be in that body pile or do you want to be like building your own system and i find it very frustrating because this might appeal to decentralists as well but we get the most upset about the politics we can do the least about no one mm. yells about local council well they do <laughs> but not no one yells about local council to quite the same extent they yell about trump uh on twitter and you think you you mathematically can do nothing about that but the other one you actually can so if you look at the if you kind of track it as a index they're completely inverse between like rage and the things you can in fact affect like literally opposite on a scale of one to ten the arrows go in the other direction and uh yeah that's but, a great point yeah that's, you, know, that's... you get addicted to it yeah it's a form of addiction i feel like people just want to vent for whatever reason. And I feel like a lot of people, they need a demon or a villain in their life. So whatever happens to them, even though it might not be the demon's fault, they could point their finger at it and basically channel all of their negative energy towards it and have some scapegoat that they can go towards at the end of the day when they're off work and they had a shitty day at work and things just didn't go their way. They can just turn on the news and look at what's wrong with Trump or the government or whatever the case may be and vent their anger towards them. And it doesn't matter if it's Trump or Obama or it doesn't really matter who it is. People want some figure to point at instead of really starting to look into what's wrong and starting with the lowest denominator and working towards that. And a lot of people, that's why I tune out when thing, when people just want to vent, I listen to them. But most of the people that are complaining about the current state of politics or whatever the case may be, they don't even understand it. They just watch no. the news and they, they go with the, the crowd or whatever is popular at the moment or that opinion. And their anger kind of goes along with that. So... There's, yeah. there's so little people that actually know what they're talking about now versus people that are really just ignorant to everything. But 
But this is my point. This is the both sides going over the cliff. Like, you, mm-hmm. why why would you argue with them? If you want to, when they start talking about Trump or Clinton or whatever it happens to be, right? Um, just ask them who their mayor is and, and <laughs> like and how much. Like seriously. Um, or also, what have you done about it? It's like, well, I tweeted a bit. You know, right. So <laughs> you're worried about. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's it, this is legitimate human things to be worried about. Like you're you're worried about uh, food affordability as a result of of healthcare changes. And like, well, where is your local um, you know food drive? Uh, the the people get addicted to the grand drama. Like they they are as you kind of use the demon example. Like you're fighting in an apocalypse, but you're not. You're just tweeting about politics. <laughs> uh, People think it's small or point. It's the opposite of pointless. It's like the whole point to actually participate locally, because mm-hmm. you can get to the end of the day. Eventually, Ed, you know, if you do this, you will find someone who knows the exact name of their mayor, where their, um, you know, where their food bank is, and how much they've given to it. And you go, damn it! All right, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if that you, if is, you uh, that's actually change. Yeah, if you if you but if you participate locally, then that means you actually have to do something. You actually have to take <laughs> responsibility. You actually, you know, you when you when people. you participate, <laughs> yeah, when you just when you can just tweet out some mean comments or something like that, it's like, you know, you don't have to do anything. You get this sense of satisfaction that like you are doing something, but it's an illusion because you're actually not. You're actually perpetuating the problem and playing into the kind of way that the system has been designed to function to, you know, distract you and take your attention away to these, you know, these, these pro wrestlers, you know, these kind of politicians, actors, you know, whatever that, uh, that, that get, gets people to like, be like, all right, listen, like these people, they can take the heat, direct all the, the heat over to them. You guys squabble and, and yell at each other. And then meanwhile, you know, people are, uh, testing teleport machines in New Mexico. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Gordon, we're running out of time, but before we wrap up, um, I want to get your take on the artificial intelligence um, saga that we're kind of heading towards. And I want to give you as much freedom as you may have in this topic. So I just want to ask you what you think about artificial intelligence and also its place for magic. Um, Okay, cool. So... Uh, I'll start off with automation uh, because I do think kind of coming back to what we're saying about consciousness before, I think it's what we've done with Silicon Valley in particular is get together the people who um, might be for a lot further up the Asperger spectrum. So the people who are least qualified to like describe or understand what a human is because that's how they're born and we've decided that they're going to make like a a suitable proxy or the same thing as a human so that's idiotic and it's idiotic because uh we haven't got consciousness right and we've been trying for thirty thousand years so the idea that we will um make a a a self-aware thing is just not necessarily on the horizon that said it doesn't have to be uh a human proxy for it to have a transformative effect on on our lives and the economy and so on. Uh, And I think, as most people are, I think we're kind of alarmed about the ongoing impact of automation that comes along with improved artificial intelligence and, and, and so on. I don't think... Elon Musk is right necessarily that um, we'll eventually build something smart enough that will 
not have our morality and kill us. But in a magical universe, you could probably transduce a demon out of the ether to live in uh, in a sufficiently complex kind of proxy of the human brain, which is which is more or less how we're going about artificial intelligence. So we could accidentally build a spirit trap that a large nasty spirit may want to live in. Um, <laughs> So he might be right in that sense, but I don't think, I think the science of mind underpinning a lot of the singularity stuff, whether it's pro or con, is dumb uh, and falsified. But the impact, we're, we're in a kind of, this will be, exciting is the wrong word, this will be more intense to go through than the Industrial Revolution between mm. now and, say, 2040. Uh, and it's really anybody's guess in which way these things go. And it it, it is, again perhaps another reason for the increasing urgency to i'm not a neoprimitivist or anything i think that stuff is moronic i'm very pro-technology but i think building uh and exploring localized and decentralized alternatives um has a number of different sources of urgency behind it and i think um the impact of ai on on western economies is one of them yeah i i i i think that uh this is something that I'm kind of obsessed with too. And I recently just watched that show Westworld on HBO and I, 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 you know, I, I thought it was pretty good. And, um, but I, I have a tendency to think, and I was listening to some Joseph Campbell stuff where he was talking about, you know, the, the myth nowadays that we need needs to be a planetary myth. And the, the, there aren't really too many really deep myths for our time. But I think that if I would say that there is one prevailing myth it's the myth of this artificial intelligence waking up and you know being kind of a uh, a nefarious force against humanity taking us out killing us you know we see this and replayed over and over in movies and you know since war of the worlds and uh, uh matrix and, and terminator and these sorts of things but i wonder is it our fear, our projection of our own human desire and lust for power and control to invent machines that will actually make us and our human minds more machine than man, to quote uh, Star Wars and Darth Vader, like that might be the thing that kind of stomps out the, the conscious, expanded, enchanted version of reality and sends us down a darker path. So this AI kind of awakening to consciousness might might be and I look at it I'm 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 kind of looking at this and kind of thinking about it right now about how this might be just a metaphor for human beings like you know we better be careful because you know we have the power and we have the capacity of our minds to really manifest something really cool so we could be like the machines that wake up and gain higher consciousness or we could be or we could terminate ourselves I think um, you're, you're right. So the sort of cyborgification has happened now. Um, it, like it, you might as well consider a human with a smartphone a cyborg, especially if we just go back to what we're talking about, about yelling on Twitter. Um, people like it, uh, it simultaneously, you know, it stresses your amygdala, but you get addicted to that hormone change when you do that. Uh, so we're already kind of there, and it, it comes back to the use of Gnosticism as a map, because in the, in the Gnostic worldview, um, the physical universe is the creation of a demiurge who thought he could do, or it could do better than God. Like, it is a uh, mm. shitty play out um, that we are trapped in of um, the real thing. And that, that, so that tension between the artificial and the 
uh, analog and analog being better like you know uh, children's birthday parties by the Mediterranean, you know, everyone's eating grapes and drinking wine and enjoying each other's company and all that kind of, that, that sort of organic life. This is, we're going back to Gnostics and the Med, right? Versus the, the sort of artifice that can be expressed as uh, technological complexity, technological addiction, and and so on. I think that, um, I think that's there. I think that's one of the things that the Gnostic myth can teach us, which is don't fall into the like the illusory one. Uh, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean avoid technology. You need the map to start with, right? So you need the map to start with to go. Well, this isn't real, or this isn't an authentic direction. But nevertheless, these uh, these tools and platforms can be put towards. Um, the analog. So I've been talking for years about the fact that we're in a post-digital world, and particularly in magic, uh, from the emergence of the internet and, you know, when chaos magic got popular, there was this kind of idea that we'd all have, you know, cyber covens and there was this great digital future where you could have different identities and, and all that kind of 90s dial-up stuff, right? Uh, that turns out to have been a really naive interpretation of what is, you know, a military communications technology platform, which is the internet and surveillance. Um, so we're in a post-digital world now, which is what things do we take from this largely disappointing experience mm -hmm. of, uh, of a failed digital future that is now nothing but, you know, horrific surveillance and, and the rest of it. What things do we take from that world into a post-digital? And that's an open question, and it's an individual one. Uh, I'm generally, I mean, my background before doing this full-time was actually in digital strategy. So I'm broadly pro, uh, I'm pro-appropriate technology. So we, and that's probably the yardstick for how we get to the post-digital and what we take with us, because uh, again, we're not there. It's one of the things, it's kind of like the two people fighting, falling over the cliff. You go, well, this is, this world is, is I don't want to say the world is coming to an end, but like this way of being in the world doesn't have much further to run. So mm. what things do you take to build a, um, a more authentic one? Open question. Great question to ask. Wow. Okay. So I want to ask you one last question before we wrap it up. And that is what can people out there listening today right now can do practically in sense of magic to better their lives? Um, I would, well, you can do two things. It depends if what you would consider would make your life better. If you want to live in a magical universe, then, you know, go and do the, um, yeah, appropriately administered high dose of either psilocybin or you know dmt ayahuasca like yeah seriously do that um that's that will do it and the other one is i don't literally mean you have two choices which is that or the abandoned <laughs> mental hospital with the board. but like um decide if you want i call it becoming invincible but to commit to finding a thing that you will never be able to unsee or unexperience even if you're stuck in a room for 40 years with Richard Dawkins yelling at you, like, <laughs> nope, nope, nope. That is probably the thing that people can, if they if they want the universe to taste better, do that. If you don't want the universe to taste, well, if you want the universe to taste better in a different way, like if you have Ed's shoe fetish, then um, 
I would recommend, I have this, you'll find it, if you just Google rune soup um, sigil magic, you'll get a, a post that I wrote many years ago that has been seen millions of times, which is a complete beginning to end rundown. Um, there's more stuff in the books and so on, but you'll get everything you need there. Um, and and do some practical enchantment and, and, and get even more shoes than Ed, because you'll do it thinking this isn't going to work. It'll work. And you'll be like, holy shit, that weird lunatic was at least partially correct. So what if you actually do the studio manager and it works and you do it for the second time and you're having so much expectations of it working? Is that the wrong approach to it? Well, that will happen anyway. Like your first batch will be much better than your second. It's the same thing with theater. And, and like the second night in theater is always the worst because people do really well. They act, You get overconfident. You're like, mm -hmm. oh, I got this. I'm an experienced occultist having done, you know, one sigil activation. Uh, and and the, the second one will be a dumpster fire. And it's this, it's kind of like an uncanny valley shape. Um, and that actually yeah. matches how people, uh, you know, did remote viewing and so on. You, you get a first attempt that's, well, a first experience that's really, really good. Then you're kind of a dog at it for a while. And then you balance out to whatever your natural level is. So... Um, yes, if you want even more shoes after that, you may have to pay for them. And should we as even as, warn as people? As soon as you get a little bit of uh, ego, a little bit of pride, you get a little cocky and you go, I got this. I know what I'm doing. You always get a lesson. You always get a little yeah, bit of a lesson that humbles it's, you. It's yeah. not even magic. Like the same thing will happen in tennis or theater or right. whatever. It's literally the same shape. So it's a good point. But uh, yeah, your first – so save up – like. Pick some good stuff for your first attempt and less good stuff for your second. Should we go for the stars or should we shoot for something smaller first? It's a great question because uh, I, at the beginning of the year, I have a premium membership component to the site where people who actually want like to do this as coursework, we do quarterly courses. And and the first one, which is available now if you join, um, it was on Sigil Magic. And it kind of take people through essentially target selection, like um, – because there's there's the end goal, like I want a yacht, right? <laughs> but there are the steps in between now and then to get to it, and uh, and I, that that's uh, difficult to do on your own and comes with practice. Which is, and what would happen is people would pick little things instead. It's like, oh well, I want to, um, I want a slight pay rise so I can pay off my credit card so I can blah blah. blah. No 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 no, it's magic. Like it works. Like. <laughs> go for something big but what happens is it always works dickishly like you never get exactly um the universe delights in delivering something um based on like it it, it technically reads the contract right. that's what i find the contract the things are delivered yeah. in a very weird way not the way that you envisioned it but somehow some way you get the same result yes and well you get near it and again with practice you once you know that that is not with practice, you won't get more precise. You will get more results. So you just have to learn that it's it's a shotgun rather than um, you know a sharpshooter. Like you, um, it, the results come scattergun, and that means you should you should pick something big, and you'll get something. You'll get a result that will be near enough to it, and you just kind of learn to live with that level of precision which is like I, I want a new job or i want it here because it's just the most bizarre you'll end up if you keep doing it you end up in a very philip k dick um breakdown situation because it's just it's it's too weird it's too weird that it works but it works in this really dickish way so yes ask for big things and um 
and take the win if you get them approximately. And should we be careful what we wish for? Because sometimes we might wish for maybe a million dollars, but that might actually require us to go through something horrible or to listen to Richard Dawkins tell us no a thousand times a day or something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, should we be careful of what we're actually summoning? Life is a fatal condition, so you will make those mistakes. Um, you should, you know, be aware that that can happen. And you kind of learn it with Sidra Magic as well. It's like, oh, I need $250,000 by September. And you're, okay, which relative would you like to die? Um, <laughs> so you do kind of learn that. But it's you will never... <laughs> I'm 20-something years into it, and I will still um, make those beginning, not killing relatives mistakes. Like, you actually get quite superstitious about <laughs> oh, asking sorry, for Uncle money. Sorry, Uncle John. <laughs> yeah, you get, you get quite superstitious about asking for money because you're like, ah, I could kill someone with this. So um, don't do that, but you will ask for things to land. So I'll give you a good example. Um, one of the many times I was being, because it's startups in London, many times I was being made redundant from this German startup I was working for. I thought, oh, it's time to come back to Australia. This was years ago. And uh, and so I enchanted for, because I kind of knew a few people at um, Google in, in Victoria, which is a southern state of Australia. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll work for Google in Victoria. What happened um, was within a week, we got extra money for the German startup. So I wasn't going to lose, you know, the company wasn't going to go under. And we moved offices. And if you know London, there's a station called Victoria, because lots of things are called Victoria, and it has um, rental offices in it. So I ended up within a week working in Victoria, because it was in the station and looking out across Buckingham Palace Road at Google. So from my desk, I was sitting in there and I said, I went, and I'm like, this is this will that's that's a magical result that's a shoot right it wasn't the shoe i was after but in a way it was because i i was only going to leave if we didn't have a job right but i i enchanted for victoria and google and i got a job in victoria where my whole day i'm staring at and then eventually ended up working <laughs> people in there at google and you go awesome there is one place in all of britain where those results could have manifested that isn't actually that there are two places on earth and it picked the other one so uh, that's the weird thing about magic. <laughs> wow, that that was amazing. And uh, man, I really had a good time talking to you and also Mike on the podcast. This this has been great and I feel like we've got to do this again. So uh, thank you so much, Gordon, for your time and also Mike for your time. I know it's getting late over there in New York City. So uh, thank you so much, you guys. It's been a blast. And uh, anywhere where we can find you, Gordon, and also Mike, yeah, you go, go first, uh, Gordon, Mike. please. Okay, well, runesoup.com has everything. I'm reasonably active on Twitter, having just said, but not yelling about Trump <laughs> and Clinton. Uh, but runesoup.com has the podcast and, and links to the books and, and all that kind of stuff. So you'll find me there. Yeah, just uh, listen to Mike Delic. Listen to listen to this podcast, man. Listen to this this show. I guess we're going to be dual releasing this, right, Ed? So yeah. just continue continue listening to this and sharing it. This is kind of my main thing. And then you can go to mikebrank.com and then also check out my YouTube channel where I'm going to be making more videos. I, I'm releasing some some comedy videos, so politics and psychedelics and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, and yeah, thank you, Gordon. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, really really got a lot out of this. Let's do it again sometime. Nice one. Will do. You're very welcome. You know what to do if you love this show. Share it, like it, spread it with your friends. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell a neighbor, tell a coworker. 
And uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Mike Brank. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. Or you can go on iTunes and leave me a nice five-star rating and review. Whatever you do, thank you for listening. Much love to you all. Peace. <laughs>